0: This is The Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number 25, recorded on August 17th, 2015. Here in Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future, all from an academic perspective. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live, actually today, from the Gallup Studios here in Omaha, Nebraska, and we post the show with the world-class show notes each week out at TheAverageGuy.tv. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can send us an email. Easiest way to do that is just send it to me, Jim, at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can track me down on Twitter at Jim, or at Jay Collison. And now you can call in those questions, 402 478 Eight four five zero, and we'll play those questions right here on the program. Of course, The Average Guy TV is powered by Maple Grove Partners Web Hosting. Get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people you know and trust. One of them is sitting right across from me right now—that's, of course, would be Christian. That's uh, that's him. He's running it, and uh, I think he, Christian, you, Christian, got a few spots right there, over there always, at Maple Grove. Always do. All right, so we can heat up the basement a little bit. Head over to MapleGrovePartners.com, and uh, I think plans start as cheap as ten bucks a month. I'm hosted on it, TheAverageGuy.tv. I know a bunch of others are well. Head over there and get that done. And now Cyber Frontiers is a part of the Geeks Network. Find the link to this show and any and many other great podcasts out at thegeeksnetwork.com. All right. Well, all the guys are back home again. They uh, Ashton is no longer here in Omaha. I always introduce Christian first. So Ashton, you made it back to New Jersey, and uh, welcome to Cyber Frontiers.
1: Yeah. It's good to be home, but I do miss Omaha. Um, so...
0: Yeah, we miss having you.
1: Well, if, if you watch the 20 minutes of me struggling to figure out how I ever podcasted from here, um, I'm not. It's been a little while, so.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's, we miss you, but we'll look forward to next summer. I'm going to see you guys in, oh, just about a month. So we'll be out there, too. We'll have to schedule some podcasting while we're out there. And, of course, his counterpart, but back in Buffalo as well, Christian Johnson. Christian, how are you doing?
2: Hey, I am in what I would call total chill mode this is when I integrate I I become one with my leather couch in the living room and just don't move for like 72 hours straight Um, so I am doing well getting recharged energy wise from what's been a long and productive summer and uh, looking forward to tonight's show. Yeah good well if you joined us off if
0: you found the program off of uh, YouTube and you're watching us this is a long play show we'll be at this for the next 45 minutes or so. So buckle in, we'd love to have you stay along for the ride. All right, tonight we want to talk a little bit about OS security. Well, one of those pieces uh, that is just not uh, Windows problems, but we're going to start with Windows, I think. Christian, uh, Microsoft has released, as of July 29th, has released a brand new version of Windows and Windows 10. Uh, Has gotten really wide adoption. A lot of people are downloading it, a lot of people are using it. It's It's getting pretty positive reviews out there as folks are downloading and using it. I'm hearing just a lot of buzz around it. We want to talk about it tonight from a technology perspective. So when we think about a new operating system, we're always worried about security. In the last, oh, in the last couple days or so out at the AverageGuy.tv's Facebook group, we've been talking a little bit about antivirus, and that's kind of one of those things that always comes up. But inherent to the system are OS kernel problems, some of those things that come, or just weird ways. Microsoft changed some things that they did with Windows 10. and It just made it it weird. So let's... uh, Let's dive into Windows 10 a little bit. You use the word debacle on this, isn't that a little strong?
2: Debacle is probably a little strong, but it's it's pretty close. Um, maybe more of like a snafu. Maybe snafu is a good word. Um, but it's somewhere in between snafu and debacle in my book. <laughs> um, you know, the reality with Windows 10 is that it is, I think, per Microsoft's usual trend of being great, being terrible, being great. Um, They kind of lived up to the expectation of Windows 7 was great, Windows 8 was terrible, and Windows 10 supposedly great. And I say supposedly because it's um, it's not a done deal in my book yet. Um, Windows 10 is really the first operating system that Microsoft has released that is the new face of Microsoft. So this is I think you know the first flagship release that you're seeing of um, a post-bomber, a bomber era. A, wow, post-bomber um, era. Thank you. In which um, you know we're now seeing an operating system that's not really a product anymore. It is a service, and this is the first time that an operating system uh, has been released from Microsoft that's as heavily integrated into its cloud services as it is the personal computing uh, world. And so, you know, when we talk about some of the benefits of the operating system, Um, it's clear they've added a lot of things that make them not only highly competitive with, um, you know, themselves in terms of outdoing what they've done in the past, but they really start to bring some of the features of uh, user interaction to the table that Google and Apple have been killing them on for a long time, right? Um, Microsoft Cortana is a hot buzz item. Um, The considerable performance improvements in Windows, hot buzz item. Uh, for gamers, the DirectX 12 package, which is basically giving you 20% performance improvements without the uh, without changing any of your hardware, you know, that's a big ticket item. Uh, the fact that the start menu is not uh, an abandoned child in the forest anymore, uh, that's been well received. Um, and the overall design, user, inter- user interface, and usability of the operating system is, is really I think at the next stage for Microsoft and you know the fact that they've really rolled this out supporting it on all platforms are allowing Windows 7 and Windows 8 users to upgrade for free Um, they've really laid the foundation for Windows 10 to be a massive rollout and to be massively successful Um, That being said, the definitive argument for why Windows 10 is no longer a product so much as it is a service is clear because it's the first operating system you can get from Microsoft that is a free upgrade for millions of users. And the intent there is that, you know, you're going to, everyone's going to get standardized on this great new platform, and Microsoft is going to move to a revenue model that is much more similar to Google than it ever has been before, where the services and the extensions that you're buying in the Microsoft portal and the operating system um, are going to be the primary um, revenue streams for the company, not the fact that you bought a product license key. Um, And with that comes the obvious reality that a big portion of the feature set that you find in in Windows 10 is connected to Microsoft's cloud services directly. Um, What this introduces as a privacy and security advocate is a lot of questions about uh, how how the operating system from the user side interacts with the server side. Um, If we take a look at some of the privacy agreements, they're kind of scary. Um, And if we take a look at how chatty the Windows operating system is on your network pipeline, it's actually kind of astounding. Uh, It's a whole new level of communication and interaction over the network pipe that um, I've never seen from a previous operating system, but it makes sense given um, all that has changed in this operating system. So I just wanted to... I'm going to go through and talk about Windows and give you a little bit of a rant there. And then Ashton's going to go through and talk about the same thing on Apple, because Apple in some ways has been doing this too. I think it's a little bit different. Um, but I want to cover some of the highlight uh, features from Windows that kind of has people um, concerned. Um, you know, the first, and and this is really an interesting reality, is that, you know, a lot of the stuff that people are starting to talk about and make concern about now has really been around since Windows 8, right? So. Um, one of the biggest changes since the Windows 7 error user base is the fact that with Windows 8, by default, it's enabled that you have your own unique machine ID that's used to track advertising experiences across the network, across the platform, etc. These are things that can be disabled if you go through Microsoft's, you know, privacy menu um, extraordinaire, which is quite extensive in Windows 10. Um, Then you have other features in Windows 10 like Wi-Fi sense where you can share your network with others. Um, People have really blown that out of proportion in terms of the privacy risk there. So I'm not going to talk about it other than to say stop listening to them. Um, But you know, these are features that you can turn on and off. They really enhance the operating system and the way we do business. um, And it's, uh, I would say, overall a value add to the OS. Um, one of the biggest features that is different in Windows 10 from any other operating system is by far um, the Cortana interface. And this is something that, you know, on the surface, uh, you can turn off, right? Um, And you can disable Cortana completely. And you would think, however, though, that upon disabling Cortana, Microsoft would stop sending data from the Cortana service. Um, But that's... Uh, Really what initial privacy experts have found, what I have initially found in my own research, is that that is not the case. Um, The operating system continues to send network traffic back to Microsoft that's specifically about Cortana. Um, There are definitely HTTP traffic going over the live wire, um, downloading uh, new metadata files for Cortana and new data points. Um, and that's something that is kind of surprising to me. Um, I don't really understand why, um, you know, Windows 10, you turn off a feature, and the feature is still communicating with Microsoft's cloud services. As a, as a design, as a, as a systems designer, and as a security evangelist, that kind of scares me. Um, what data that's actually being sent, uh, kind of unclear to me still at this point. Um, other things, you know, traffic-wise that look harmless, but, you know, it it's kind of unclear why it's happening. Um, one is the pin tiles that show up in the, you know, since the Windows 8, and the, Windows 8 does this too, so it's a valid question for that platform too, but um, Windows 10 especially downloads new uh, tile information that, you know, powers that front-end graphic with your news and weather. Uh, at all goes over unencrypted HTTP traffic um, it's not clear why some of those requests happen when the tile doesn't exist on the page so like if I delete the weather tile and I delete the news tile it still goes out and gets that data that's not so much of a privacy concern is just uh, why are you doing that kind of thing um, so on, on one side you know even just looking at the network bandwidth that's used on an average Windows 10 PC, it's definitely much higher than your average Windows 7 PC on idle, right? Even services like the Windows Update service in in Windows 10 has drastically changed, where they now have a new feature where if my desktop receives updates before someone else's desktop on my network, that other desktop might go to download those updates from my machine automatically. Now, there is buried in the settings page a way to turn that off, but, you know, by default, your average home consumer user who's just putting these compute machines on their network, their, their machines are naturally using more bandwidth at a state of rest than um, any other operating system before. Um, so, you know, even what kind of implications that has on, like, if you're a mobile device user and you're taking your tablet out, how much additional network traffic is that, um, is that causing you uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, when we talk about some of the privacy-oriented concerns, as opposed to the technology-oriented concerns, uh, really it's the end-user language that is—you know—it's not just the—it's not just the things we're seeing on the technology side so much as the end-user license. Um, I know when the Windows 10 Technical Preview came out, uh, came out, I talked about this briefly, and that was that the Windows 10 license agreement very clearly, explicitly states that they have access to all your documents, all your files, keystrokes, etc. And the language is very stark and upfront in ways that you would have never seen that in a Windows 7 uh, end-user license agreement. And when we look at the final release of Windows 10, While some of that language has backed off, um, definitely far from the whole thing being backed off. And, you know, this is really becoming a privacy headache for Microsoft because they are not being uh, as transparent as they should be about A, how the data sharing and how the users are interacting with their system, um, and B, where that... Uh, license agreement is really getting applied in the context of uh, sending data back and forth. You know it's one thing to have data go back you know for my speech if I have my microphone on because I'm using Cortana and you're trying to improve your audio engine. Yeah, Apple does that, Google does that, etc. But no one from Microsoft has really come forward and explained why you need my keystrokes, why you need my files and yes I I can sit here and conceive ways in which this is all improving the operating system but as a security-conscious uh, person, these are things that you know. I don't. These are features I wouldn't want. I would just as I would just as, soon as much turn them off to know that there's not a keystroke uh, application running on my desktop, um, which you know, one point, in and of itself is it would be awesome if Microsoft had made a release of Windows 10 that was designed to be kind of the standalone enterprise release that was completely disconnected from the cloud services because I see this being a major adoption challenge in the enterprise um, where they're going to want much more uh, stricter controls over how updates happen, over how the system's interacting, you know those networks are much more tightly monitored, you want to have the traffic much cleaner, um, this is going to be an adoption challenge for major fortune companies is is my prediction. Whereas on the user and the commercial side, you know, we're seeing the adoption rate is huge because it, they made it so easy for you to get those upgrades, to have that icon bar put in your tray, to download your free upgrade, etc. Um, the privacy headache is a headache because... You know, we started with these core set of features that, you know, people traced and saw data, and then we're seeing new articles come into the fold um, that continue to be a problem for Microsoft. Um, One of the ones that has come out in the last day or two that has been a popular conversation point is the privacy headache over gaming, where... Uh, there's now explicitly put in the license agreement Microsoft actually scans portions of your machine as it pertains to you using Microsoft based games and services to see if you've installed counterfeit software and tries to basically automatically disable any unauthorized hardware and or software that you're using on your machine right so whether or not you agree that's a thing for Microsoft to be in the business of doing is a separate conversation from the fact that your CPU is now spending time scanning, making sure these things are right, doing file-sum checks, um, sending data about you back to Microsoft, enhancing your advertising experience. And what you start to realize is it's actually very difficult to take Windows 10, install it on your machine, and isolate it in such a way that you can turn off all this chatter. And that's kind of the core... That's the first core... um, argument that I make is that Microsoft at this stage in the game would be a lot, it would be a lot classier if they not only provided this really great user experience with the cloud integration and the services, because let me tell you, there's a lot of average people whose lives are going to be benefited by having those services, but for the technology evangelists and for the people that freak out about this, Microsoft could have easily not alienated those users as easily into being... Uh, you know these are going to be the same people who held on for Windows XP for 15 years which I'm sorry that's not the same argument because the XP kernel is far less secure than Windows 7, so I don't really like that argument, but you know, th- this is going to be the same transition with Windows 7 where these people are going to hold on to Windows 7 for 10-plus years um, because Microsoft didn't go through the lengths to make the you know Windows 10 Privacy Edition, so to speak, and not really the Privacy Edition, really just the Windows 10 version that is a product as opposed to a product-cloud-service hybrid offering, which is really... Um, what Windows 10 is at this point. And so I've uh, gone really back and forth between being like, do I want Windows 10 on my laptop, on my tablet? Um, I made the determination right off the bat that Windows 10 was not going on my primary desktop workstation because there was just no way in hell with the amount of data and the level of granularity that I have my, my primary workstation configured to that I was comfortable throwing that into the void that is Windows 10. So that was off limits. But, I was open to upgrading my new uh, Lenovo Yoga 2 tablet and this uh, Core 2 Duo workhorse in which I'm broadcasting from now um, to Windows 10 to see what the experience was like. And even then, um, I got as far as letting the image download to my machine and then I was like, nope, I'm not doing it. Um, So the farthest you're going to get me to go, probably for the next six months to a year, is having it in a uh, virtual machine sandboxed where I'm studying the behaviors and activities with most keen intent. Um, so of course, I've started trying to look at, well, how can I disable some of the chattiness and the and the internet traffic and, and make this browser do my bidding, or operating system do my bidding? And it's really an interesting battle. Um, if you're running Windows 10 as a desktop where you know the desktop is never gonna leave whatever network it's connected to, um, you can, you would think that, so, you know, obviously the the very naive approach to saying, how do I disconnect the cloud offerings? I make my computer disconnected from the internet, right? Well, obviously, if you were to disconnect your whole computer from the internet, it would be kind of useless, so the, the logical equivalent of that is saying, I'm gonna go into my Windows host file, and I'm going to start recording all the network packets that are coming in and out of this machine, and I'm gonna look for all the ones that pertain to Microsoft, and I'm going to block them in my host file by basically finding those domain names that Microsoft is communicating to, redirecting them to localhost, and keeping that traffic from ever getting in or out of my machine. Um, That is a cute approach, and for most things non-Microsoft, that would work. But in Windows 10, even that doesn't work because they actually whitelisted and hard-coded the, dem- the DNS names that they need to run their services in their DLLs. So if I explicitly try and block one of those uh, domain names from resolving on my machine, I physically can't because the DLL just bypasses that whole host file DNS infrastructure and makes its own system calls. Um, this is one example uh, that I've talked about before about how certain system calls in these newer systems just get completely ignored and you really have no way of knowing without doing further analysis whether or not your system is running uh, the way you configured it. Google Chrome has done some of the same mischief in the past which is why I also call Google Chrome an operating system within an operating system when talking about um, the Windows environment. So you know, on the one hand, the only way you can block those Microsoft-related traffics if it's on a, you know, your desktop is sitting on the network, is to block it at your gateway, right? So if you're if you have your router table, yeah, you can definitely block those hosts and services. Um, and you know, when you do that, obviously the traffic's not going to be able to escape your home gateway, and your your quote unquote boxing in your system and sandboxing it the way you want to to keep that chattiness from happening. Um, But in the real-world scenario most of my devices that I'm gonna have running Windows 10 are gonna be connecting to all sorts of different networks, right? My tablet's gonna be connecting to dozens of networks at any given time. So that approach of blocking things at the gateway doesn't work. We know the approach of blocking things at the host level works, so what you're kinda left with is a very imperfect solution of how do I disconnect this machine from these Microsoft related services. Um, so I still haven't found the best solution to that network aspect of it where, you know, I'm, I'm directly looking at network traffic and, and pruning out the network traffic that I don't like for my mobile devices. Um, that's one whole area that still has a lot of work, so to speak. Um, But there are two applications that have come out for Windows 10 privacy that I want to draw everyone's attention to and will be um, in the show notes. Um, The one is an application, the source code was uh, released on uh, GitHub uh, not too long ago, but actually a little less than two weeks ago. And um, it's called the Windows Tracking Disable Tool, um, cute name. Um, maybe they got their advice from Microsoft on how to name things. But basically, um, this application specifically focuses on disabling uh, telemetry data. So, with the Windows 10 for the first time has a lot of telemetry related data, um, and this is more the tracking stuff that you would see in your Googles and your Apples in terms of tracking your user experience, giving you customized targeted ads, that kind of thing. Um, So this tool will allow you to outright kind of disable, turn off, kill uh, telemetry related activities in the operating system. Um, Then the second uh, related tool um, is called Do Not Spy 10 and this is an application that allows you to, without having to go through and figure out all the Windows menus for the features and where all those settings are, it allows you to specifically enable and disable features um, that are in Windows that, could affect your privacy. So it allows you to disable telemetry, biometrics, handwriting data sharing, error reporting, application telemetry, inventory collection, steps recorder, lock screen camera, Cortana, location, sensors, web search, DRM, I mean there's a laundry list of about 30 things that are different in this operating system that it will allow you to specifically go and shut off. And this is obvious, This is probably one of the um, most fully-featured applications uh, that's out there right now. It's called Do Not Spy 10, and that's kind of the most one-shot-kills-all to get a lot of those features that are chatty and that impact your privacy turned off. That being said, even if I had both of these applications installed and running on Windows 10, I'm not 100% confident, as a security evangelist, that that's the ultimate solution to running my device in a way that I feel is secure. So. Um, it's going to take me a little bit more time to become a Windows 10 fan. I really, really, really love the features that are in Windows 10, which is why this is a, I call it a debacle. Maybe snafu is going to be the best word for this podcast. Um, But it's a snafu for me because there are a lot of great features that have had me tempted and enticed to upgrade to Windows 10, and yet I feel very held back as an end user because I'm I'm not interested in compromising my network bandwidth and my privacy uh, just to get these features when Windows 7 does relatively everything that I want it to do, and I'm not going to complain about it. Um, I kind of wish Microsoft was being more upfront and transparent. I wouldn't be worrying about this or be as OCD about it as much as I've been so far in my analysis if the end-user license agreement wasn't so explicitly plain as day Yes, we're collecting your keystrokes, we're scanning your files, we're doing hash sum verifications, we're downloading data from the cloud, we're sending data back to the cloud. It is really overwhelming on a scale that I've never seen with Microsoft before, Um, and really if you were to compare to some of the other privacy agreements for like Google services or Apple, it's pretty astounding. Um, and I think there's a lot of technology evangelists out here right now who are in agreement with me on the analysis that I just gave you, and they're going to be sitting on the sidelines staying on Windows 7 until they see how some of this plays out, and I think Microsoft will have a challenge in that they will definitely, I think this operating system will definitely succeed in appealing to the masses and to the average end user. I think they're going to struggle in the enterprise on this one because I just don't see, and I haven't installed the Windows 10 Enterprise Edition yet, so the jury will still be out a little bit for me on that, um, but I think they're going to struggle to adopt in the enterprise at the rate that they should be able to do, given that this is Windows and Windows thrives in enterprise environments.
0: Christian, I'm not sure the enterprise can make a difference, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I just don't think they're going to look as carefully. And uh, I, I already know a lot of them have held off on Windows 7, and they're looking for 10 as kind of the next, you know, the next big thing. I'm just not sure they're going to scrutinize it that Carefully, Do you, are you seeing evidence that would say any different?
2: I mean, I'm seeing a lot of evidence uh, in certain uh, corporate arenas where, you know, Windows 7 Enterprise deployments on Server 2008 R2 and or Server 2012 is a very popular configuration right now. It provides a lot of enterprise security and flexibility for them and also allows... Um, you know, users are very comfortable with how Windows 7 works at this point from a workplace standpoint, and I don't think they're seeing, th- I don't I don't think all the corporations are seeing the compelling jump for why Windows 10 is going to allow them to do their jobs easier, yet alone uh, make it easier to manage their network and their systems when we're talking thousands of devices. Um, you know, a lot of enterprise shops like this um, write custom applications to patch their machines. They have custom policies. I don't quite see them being as eager to adopt those same set of policies for uh, the Windows 10-based um, product line yet because I think they're still kind of wondering what is this going to enhance for us in the workplace. So I, I don't know. I, I see I see there will probably be some early adopters, but I think some of the real large corporations that have you know wide, long-standing architectures of Windows 7 Enterprise, I don't think they're going to budge.
0: Okay. Well, to to be fair, uh, you mentioned that we're gonna talk about Apple too. This just isn't a Windows problem. So Ashton, let's throw it over to you as we think about, you know, when we when we look at and we, we don't talk a lot about security on the Mac side. Everybody just kind of assumes it's there. Talk a little bit about what you know what concerns you have.
1: Well, I think it's just kind of it's it's not it's not a, a Microsoft issue. It's just kind of an operating system issue and the trade-off between increased functionality and, and increased privacy and you, you can't really have both. And the the, the issues are, are pretty similar um, when you look at the, the, the big culprit for Mac is the spotlight feature and a lot of that data is sent back to Apple. Um, and you can disable it, but if you don't, then w- w- pretty much all the, all the things that you would search for go back to Apple for improvement in the search engine, ostensibly. It's not explicitly told. but uh, the, and, and even what's kind of strange is that even if you use uh, search engines like DuckDuckGo or, or other um, search engines which are supposed to improve your privacy, th- that data is still sent back to Apple. And it's kind of a, a weird thing that it's difficult to get around. Um, so that's one end of the issue which is sort of difficult and I mean you can you can disable it but it's not something that it's by default it's there and a lot of people aren't aware of this and that can be pretty problematic and then the other side of it is the, is a feature that's called continuity or, or handoff and the way that that works is it uses the iCloud sharing um, to back up your documents not just on your hard drive if they're unsaved but also on Uh, on the Apple server. So what will happen is if you're working on a document and you haven't saved it yet uh, and your computer shuts down for some reason, you might still be able to retrieve that not from uh, your hard drive but actually on your phone from the iCloud server. Uh, And this is kind of a bizarre behavior because you wouldn't expect that something that you haven't even saved yet is already on the Apple servers and potentially... That, that could be sensitive data that you, you wouldn't want in the hands of, of anyone but you. So I think it kind of reflects the just you know the, the issues are sort of similar across all of the different operating systems. And uh, while there are sort of fixes in, in both cases, you can turn off Spotlight, you can turn off iCloud and, and things like that, It's, it's not uh, a default behavior. It's not something that you would necessarily think to, get to do unless you're a power user. Um, but even if you're not a power user, you can have lots of sensitive data that's still vulnerable to, to exploitation if you don't, uh, if you aren't familiar with what's going on. So that's pretty much the, the Mac side of it. It's kind of just a, a reflection of the Windows side in a lot of ways. But um, these are concerns I think that we're going to be facing for a long time just that are kind of inherent in the, the operating systems trying to gather more and more information but also preserve the privacy side.
2: Yeah, I still, I think the one uh, interesting difference still with the privacy, even on the Apple side, is that I still, in my mind, even with the latest release of Apple, I see Apple still much more as a product as opposed to a hybrid product cloud offering like Windows 10, which is kind of a silly notion, to be honest, because Apple has probably one of the most advanced cloud architectures and integrated, but I think they have been doing it for so long and so smart about how it integrates with the mobile experience, the iPad you know, really your, your cell phone, your iPad and your laptop and or Mac desktop are all kind of integrated into that system. Um, But I don't think their end user license agreements are as explicitly uh, jarring to the end user in terms of what types of data is going back and forth as what we see in Windows 10, which is... It's
1: not it's amazing. not quite as much of a, a snafu. It's not as much of a debacle.
2: No, it's, well, it's
0: definitely... Or do Mac users just accept it as being part uh, of the... Right? It's part of the well, cost I mean, of doing business.
1: Honestly, yeah. I think that a lot of users that aren't uh, super into security are, are fine with the increased features at the expense of this you know these security honestly the number of people who read the end user license agreement is is pretty small like not not very many people Zero. Uh, will Will take that time they they right. want to they want to use windows 10 they want to use the they want their search bar or their, their uh, start menu back and and all, all of those things uh and they they don't want to read through a 20,000 word legal document on the possible security ramifications of
0: this, well, but don't you think, I mean, most, for the end user, right, as long as you're not stealing my bank account information and
1: password,
0: I don't, you know, for the, for, I don't have anything that I would even consider. So I'm syncing stuff and they've got access to it. You know, I'm not, again, I'm. there are people who have some serious concerns about that. I just, I'm not necessarily one of them. I think I'm more like the average guy. When I would really, I'm willing to take the convenience instead of the security because I don't view it right or wrong because I don't view my content as being, eh, it's not that important. You know, we make show notes for this show, right? We have them on Google Docs. If somebody else were to, I mean, if Google were to have access to them, or, I, oh, so, <laughs> publish them. Do something with them, right? It's And I create a lot of documents like that. I get it, though. I mean, there is a lot of stuff out there to be secure.
1: I think the scary thing, though, is the some of the things that Christian mentioned are in the end-user license agreements include keystrokes, and at that point... You don't really get to say, well, that that's everything, you know. That's that's, true. that's, that's you're true. typing in your your credit card or your password or whatever it may be. Then you don't really have control over. Oh well, I don't do anything that important on this. It it can still come back to bite you.
0: Well, don't you think? I mean, in this, in the, in the. Um they're trying to be helpful. I mean, Keystrokes is so they can understand in, as they're developing Windows 10, they want to get some ideas of what people are doing and how they're doing it so they can make the product better. Don't you think that's just an overreaching of convenience for them that when we look at it goes, oh, well Keystrokes, well you could be recording the password to my bank account, right? I mean, does Christian, is that what that says?
2: Yeah I mean I think it's one thing to say you know we'll have this keystroke whatever service on a technical preview where you know they're in the you know they're in the core process of trying to make the operating system and improve based on user feedback it's another entirely different thing to be putting that in a production release especially I mean, this and this is part of the reason why I think the enterprise is going to be so boggled by this. I can't imagine any enterprise feeling comfortable about accepting an end-user license agreement that says, "Hey, guess what? We own your keyboard." Um, that just would not fly. And that's where that's where the data really does matter, right? And uh, you know, there's a lot of different um, concerns over the um, the continuity and the security of where that data is going and what form the data is existing in. And, you know, you brought up an interesting point about, well, you know, I don't really care if Microsoft has my files that are on the cloud or whatnot because at the end of the day, you know, big corporation, I could probably trust them to maybe do the right thing. Uh, you know, you as an individual can choose to take that leap of faith. But what the interesting segue is, is uh, released on in Black Hat. Uh, which is one of the largest security conferences, uh, probably next to, uh, along with DEF CON out on the west coast, um, at DEF CON, presented a couple weeks ago, uh, is one of the first real intriguing white papers on man-in-the-middle attacks for cloud storage accounts, where you don't even need the person's password, and I'm not going to try and read you the 20-page technical paper, I'll make sure to include it in the show notes, but it basically goes through how, you know, these, synchronous applications where you know your OneDrive right is automatically keeping those folders that you specify they're keeping it up to date they're keeping them in sync making sure your files are getting up there and available to your other devices obviously it would be a pain if every time a change or an update happened you'd have to put in a password right so these clients um, create a token that then is used to authorize back with the cloud service and this basically, this walkthrough at Black Hat was the first real demonstration of how a successful man-in-the-middle attack for, you know, Dropbox, Google, OneDrive, etc., could be done. So that, you know, yeah, you don't even you don't even need to hack the username and password. You create this man-in-the-middle attack. You force that client to give you one of these valid tokens, and then you turn right back around and use that token to log in as a as a backdoor entrance to the real service. Um, and at that point, yeah, it's not Microsoft that has your files. It's Microsoft and whoever else is smart enough to carry off these man-in-the-middle attacks. And again, these are uh, sophisticated attacks. They're, there's a level of complexity with all of this, but the point is there's there are real realities and real situations and real implications for both average users and especially the enterprise. Um, and when you have an operating system that has become so heavily integrated in cloud services and infrastructure people are going to stop focusing on the, you know, engineering of malware and viruses that sit on your desktop. You know, the traditional antivirus is going to disappear. They're going to start looking at the network, the cloud services, and the back end, and you're, you know, you're no longer going to see the day where, a virus comes in, installs itself on your file system. Your computer gets hosed. You take it to your tech expert. He runs an antivirus scanner. It's all cleaned up, tidied up, and you you know you have your machine back. No, these viruses, uh, with with having these cloud interfaces, are going to become much more complex because they're going to live in memory. They're not going to leave a footprint on your file system. They're going to be in the network, which is where the average user especially notices the least amount of change in their network and as our bandwidth pipes get more you know we get these larger bandwidth pipes we get Google Fiber we we don't necessarily even notice if our internet is slow right less and less we hear hey who's hogging up the bandwidth I want to watch Netflix right that's becoming kind of a phrase of of five years ago so now you don't the average user isn't even aware of hey my network is degraded what's going on these highly sophisticated applications will be able to live in your network, live in the memory, have a very small footprint in relation to the available system resources, and they will go after the cloud. They will not go after your machine, um, and that's arguably 10 times more dangerous than the type of conventional uh, malware we've had in the in the last 10 years.
1: And I, th- I think that's, well, that's exactly what I thought when, when Jim says, well, I mean it's i it, or i guess it was you that was saying that i mean you can trust them you can take that leap of faith and assume that microsoft is not interested in your your personal information and maybe not you know i don't know if you're familiar with that xkcd comic where it's it, they're they're um, it's google and they're they're having a meeting at this table and the the lead ceo is saying well we're going to turn evil what can we do and they're like well we already have all the money and we have Uh, pretty much all the resources and uh, that we could ever need so there's not really much that we could do if we wanted to turn evil and I don't know if that's an accurate representation of what's going on or something that you'd want to rely on Um, it is kinda funny but the problem is not really Microsoft in this case having access to that data it's storing it on the cloud like you're talking about and it's just tracking that information and having it uh, theoretically accessible by attackers is where, where the problems arise um, so that's one piece of it. And then the other piece of it is, like you said, more and more the attacks are not going to be uh, ad hoc on a computer or a, an individual machine or a tablet or whatever. Uh, it's going to be on networks, and they're going to sit, like you said, on, on the on the routers and on the switches and things like that. And uh, the, that reminded me of the, the, the Jeff Atwood article that he'd just written, which is called, Welcome to the Internet of Compromised Things, and it scared the hell out of me because uh, instead of th- they're virtually untraceable. It's it's for the user that's even familiar with their computer. They're not thinking that the attacks are going to be on the router. Or it's going to be on the network instead of on their computers. They might have malware uh, removal software. They might have antivirus software, is the better term. Um, but very rarely do you have something that can scan your router or your network for for malicious. Uh, software on there and that that's, I think is so much scary and so much harder because everything that you do is tracked and, and easily accessible and this you know spoofing of the authentication token to get access to these to these uh, cloud services is just one tiny example of the terrible things that could happen if the attacks are more targeted towards the network and the, the routers instead of just the computers.
2: Yeah, and I mean, you know, not only the the Internet of Things is a great example where that is going to be a game changer in terms of detectability, but also another one of the presentations in Black Hat that brings that home um, exactly is industrial control systems. And there was a presentation that was done at Black Hat where the presenter basically said um, industrial control systems are one of the most unique and interesting challenges to cybersecurity because, A, they're the least reported... Um, when a breach or when an issue happens with an industrial control system you never hear about it in the news like you do with these other things it's kind of a very hush-hush thing Um, number two is they're having the same problem where A, they still don't really know how hackers are exploiting some of these systems. They don't know what the techniques are. Whereas at least what we're talking about now, we have an idea of what the techniques are. We have an idea of how those environments and those situations are created. They don't even know what the situations are yet that are uh, being taken advantage of in the industrial control um, uh, market. And as a result, that kind of silent but deadly thing that's always sitting there doing malicious activities um, is expanded upon in a way that um, really we're seeing we're starting to see with the Internet of Things with cloud services with you know cloud product offerings like Windows 10 um, just not at the extent apparently that what has been going on with uh, SCADA systems and some of these other services so uh, I'll try and talk about more of that on a future show I'm still waiting for all of the um, uh, the technical write-ups to come out from Black Hat 2015, it's going to take probably another couple months before the archive becomes available. Um, they only have the archive through 2014 available, so once all that stuff starts to trickle back through, uh, we'll definitely do analysis on the show and try and get someone who is out at the conference to come talk about that. But, um, you know, the detectability is going to become such a hard issue where uh, you know, again, you're going to see the end of antivirus software very quickly because the, the battle of security is going to be so much broader than just signature-based file detection. Uh, we're, we're moving to memory and network in terms of where the, where the vulnerabilities live and that's really starting to be a game changer when we talk about how do you keep Windows 10 secure, how do you keep your OneDrive account secure, how do you keep your LastPass up to date. I mean, whether you're a consumer or you're an enterprise, between the end user license agreements coming out saying, "Yeah, we can take whatever we want," and then the technology itself enabling hackers to get whatever they want, uh, we're fighting a two pronged war in which we're we're winning neither at this point, and so. Uh, these are going to be serious problems coming up for uh, security evangelists as we keep thinking, hmm, how do we fix this? Christian,
0: for the average guy, does dual factor change anything when we think of this man in the middle attack? Uh, if they so, they so they get access to it in a token, but they're not coming from a, a known location, will it throw two factor and stop them?
2: Um, in this case, I don't think it would, right? Because if you have spoofed the middle endpoint Um, and you've done that initial uh, exchange, usually it's during the initial exchange where it would say, hey, you know, give me some second form of authentication to validate yourself. In this case, you're basically, you're swiping off that token that has already been created. It doesn't matter how many forms of authentication you have in the middle. It's just taking that already, you know, you already have the key to the kingdom, basically. You make a copy of it on a fake system, and now you're circumventing it and going back to the real system, and you're you're basically fooling the client. So the way you fix that is you have to figure out how do you redesign these cloud clients to be, uh, I guess, more aware of who they're connecting to. But that's the problem. The whole point of a man-in-the-middle attack is that you are you are... Passing all of the, you're getting all those green check marks that say yes, I am the real Microsoft server that represents syncing your account. And at that point, it's game over. Yeah,
0: it's almost like some form of authentication all the way back to you that can't be
2: spoofed, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. One, one other. Yeah.
1: Sorry. One, one small note is uh, regarding the the black hat uh, briefings. That the briefings are already. Oh, so I guess those are. I'm not oh. sure if those are what the talks are going to be on, or how I that saw works. the
2: I saw the overview of what all the talks were going to be, but I didn't see like the presentation slides or anything posted for that yet. Yeah, they so actually really...
1: they do appear to have the the slides are there and the white papers are there. So oh. send so I me mean, go uh, we'll put through. that link we'll put that link in the show notes. But yeah, I was perfect. looking at some of them and they're really informative. Some of them are uh, deep, deep, deep dives. Uh, right. So maybe a little technical, right. but Pretty interesting stuff.
2: Yeah, you can get lost in, in going back through those. Arc- even over the last three years, if you were to try and understand all the presentations that were given between DEF CON and Black Hat alone, it would be a pretty interesting uh, life undertaking.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's more probably more content than you can consume in a... yeah. Uh, for, uh, for the average uh, guy. Or even the yeah, above. For the average guy, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you're having trouble sleeping at night, just uh, pull those <laughs> out and uh, they'll put you right to sleep. Now, some important well, stuff. Uh, they,
1: may stay, they may keep you up because of all the vulnerabilities. That's
0: the true. You might be. If you, I think if we really realized how crazy and wild west the internet is, just in, in any level, I mean, you, you just, I think none of us would sleep at night. You have to at some point kind of say, well, it's security by obscurity. There's so many things going on that it, it happening to me personally. The chances are pretty small. <laughs> or, I mean, that's how most of us live, I think, yeah. to, just to be honest, right? I mean, when, when I talk to you guys, I, uh, I kind of go, man, I just want to shut my computer off and be done with it. And you really <laughs> can't live in that world anymore. You know, 10 or 15 years ago, you could still do your banking that way. I mean, and you still can, right? I mean, there's... My mom's that way. She doesn't do a lot of stuff, but it's it's next to impossible. It's horribly inconvenient, right? And so it's just one of those kinds of things where I've I've even gotten down. So when I run out of protein bars, I just log in with you know to my Amazon account on my phone. I've got it all preset with one click. I just order more, and boom, they're in they're they're to me in two days, right? I don't even. I, mean, think
1: I, I haven't lost my house in years. It's awesome. <laughs>
0: Now I know that's not true because I just saw you here on the campus. When um uh, when are you guys going back to
2: school? What's when school start for Maryland? Thirty first first day of classes. Oh okay. But I'm back. Most of us are going to be back next week, starting to move back in. Okay.
0: And uh, well, it'll be interesting to see. I think uh, so. As we look at the calendar, then uh, this is the today's the seventeenth. Thirty-first is the first day. Uh, it's probably not realistic to think we can do a Cyber Frontiers on. Well, you guys have been moved back before. What, could we do one on the thirty-first? Could we get another one in? You think? I think so. All right. Well, let's let's shoot for that. I would try like to get uh, on a regular schedule every two weeks if we if we possibly can. So we'll we'll give. Uh, yeah. August thirty-first, right? Okay. Yep.
1: I think we just we just recently past a, a year, right? Because I think we did one on the first day of classes last year. Did we?
2: It uh, would have been pretty close, yeah. Yeah.
0: For, the, for Cyber Frontiers as a whole or for with having you on?
1: Oh, just so, me. That's true. Just me. Wait, it's, it's been more than a year. Go. It's been more than a year. Christian
0: and I did a couple, I think in the spring, Christian, and then we, yep. we brought you on. Yeah. Because yep. we had we had Dr. Pertolo on, right? Before yep. we
1: brought, brought Ash. That was in fall
0: 2014, so. Yeah. Now I'm going to get a chance to teach in his class again, which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, Super sorry. That's spring of 2014. One,
1: one right. quick last thing, Randy. Yeah. Did you get the?
0: I dropped the links did, in there. Did
1: you, you got the article. All right. Never mind yeah, then.
0: I grabbed um, those. That was those are the
1: ones in the show notes, right? I just put it in. Yeah. Oh.
0: The very uh, last.
1: It's, the very it, you last. Got it, you one? got a Blog. Uh, cutting horror.
2: Yeah, I think I got it. Yeah. Yep. I got it. Go ahead, Christian. Uh, the only last thing that I'll try and cover a little bit more in the next show but it was a community request and this is a community podcast so we're gonna talk about it and that is the uh, the mr. robot show on USA network uh, a lot of people have been asking me hey what are your thoughts about this is this the real deal um, you know etc uh, it's honestly both from like a theatrical critic standpoint and from a technologist standpoint it is by far the First thing on TV in in any recent memory of, you know, cyber-based shows, like CSI Cyber, it's a joke when you see all the fake stuff going across the screen and that kind of thing. It it almost makes, you know, people who are technology-oriented kind of chuckle and be like, okay, I'm turning this off before I have to, you know, uh, go insane. And um, Mr. Robot is just total opposite of that. Um, It's really a, a psychological thriller. Uh, Honestly, kind of on the really sketchy uh, rating side in terms of, like, uh, not safe for work, appropriate for family audiences, so tread with caution if that's a concern for you, Um, but if we're talking simply about how realistic is the depiction of the cybersecurity, the hacking, the culture, it is incredibly accurate. They really focus on kind of some of the real world uh, types of scenarios that would come up with, you know, email phishing and, and data espionage and exfiltration and hacker culture society. Um, it's eerily, uh, brutally uh, much more realistic. It's not perfect, but it's brutally realistic in comparison to anything we've ever seen on television before. You know, when they do the close-in screen-ups of the, of the council, you're seeing Actual commands, not BS. So the people who are sitting there say, yeah, I do this at work for a living. It actually you know, it resonates with a lot of people. Um, and so geeks love this show wholeheartedly. And obviously people who aren't technology-oriented are really enjoying it too because it's a really interesting psychological drama. Um, but it... Uh, yeah, Randy has maybe the best word for it. It's a nasty show. Um, it is really a nasty show, but um, it has some really... Fantastic elements that I think keep people hooked, and um, USA has really brought out a um, an interesting uh, an interesting show that I think really has made all the other cyber shows look kind of derpy in terms of like, yeah, this is a real world scenario. Some
0: really bad ones, yeah, <laughs> including every CSI ever made.
2: Right, right. So <laughs> this is one terrible. is just brutally realistic and like me as a technologist I'm excited to see the realism there Um, again as Randy says nasty is probably the word to describe Mr. Robot in other ways so (laughs) tread with caution (laughs) we are not a TV rating maybe not safe work maybe not for safe for work yeah
0: not safe for work Right. Sounds good. Well, with that, we'll wrap it. I want to say thanks for listening. If you uh, you joined us tonight live, thank you for coming out. We had a quick, I just didn't get this advertised over the weekend, and uh, I need to do a better job of that. I say that every time, and for whatever reason, you know, I've got all the time in the world, on the, I shouldn't say that, but on the weekend, I'm intentionally working on podcasting stuff, and I, I always miss this one. I need to get better about that, but if you want to follow everything that we do, I do put the schedule and post it, even for Home Gadget Geeks, out on the the TV site, so Go to TheAverageGuy.tv, check that out. We're gonna get back on a two-week schedule, hopefully with these guys. You know, they're in school, so it makes it tough, and we, we, we do a lot of stuff during the year. So we'll try and get back on every two weeks. If you haven't subscribed to Cyber Frontiers yet, you might wanna do that. Just head out to TheAverageGuy.tv slash subscribe. We wanna thank you for using the Amazon link. It's just the TheAverageGuy.tv slash Amazon. And uh, we wanna also just say thanks, Christian. Thanks for hosting all that we do for TheAverageGuy.tv over there. That's always up and running. Only to be slowed down by
2: a plugin, right? Yes. So, so when you want to know how fast Maple Grove Partners is as a platform, don't use the average guy right now as that measure. Go to MapleGrovePartners.com because Jim's uh, podcast plugin's kind of uh, got some issues. I'm
0: sacrificing speed for convenience at this point, and it's uh, there's it, the the player, the audio player that we use, has a lot, a bunch of little gadgets in it. I really like it, but it does slow down the rendering, uh, the the download of the site. Uh, Fairly significantly, so Christian's right. Head out to Maple Grove Partners if you want to check out speed uh, for that, and uh, and we've got some good stuff uh, going on there. But head out to the Average Guy TV. Just wait an extra second as it downloads. It it actually goes pretty fast. And Christian's got some rock solid stuff going. Figured out figured out some stuff this summer that uh, made it even faster. I couldn't believe I shut off the plug-in and it was just loading like that uh, when we got done. And so hopefully uh, hopefully Hanny, we had him on the show. He's on home gadget geeks hopefully you'll get that fixed and we'll be uh bullies speed again we want to thank you for listening we're out here every other monday night or so and uh, just again like i said watch the average guy dot tv for it if you like the show and uh, share it we'd love you to have you to uh have a friend listen to it or what have you and with that we'll say good night
2: everybody good night have a good one